0: Hello and
1: happy new year and thanks for joining us for episode 827 with Leanne Davey. Leanne had so much fantastic insight about conflict and what it's really about and how to deal with it and the emotional pieces. So basically a boatload of insight in a fantastic way to kick off the new year. So you'll learn one, why facts won't solve a conflict and what will. Two, how to productively respond to harsh criticism. And three, what most people get wrong about feedback. So if you want to check out the show notes or the transcript or the links to items that we've referenced, please pay us a visit over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash EP827. And while you're there, please check out some of our goodies. I know January, we have a lot of new listeners historically is a pattern. So if that's you, I want to say, welcome. It's so awesome to have you and give you a little bit of extra detail about the cool stuff you can find at our website, awesomeatyourjob.com. If you've heard this message a hundred (laughs) times, feel free to skip ahead a few minutes as I orient some new folks. So the scoop is you have so much good stuff there. We've got transcripts. We've got every episode, we've done 827 of them now, and it's tagged by the topic and the competency that we've covered. So that's pretty handy. We've got some email goodies in terms of the 10 Days to Winning at Work email course, which shares some great tools you can use to slash some of the wasted time out of the work week so you have more time for the fun work or just to get home earlier. And we've got the gold nugget summaries, which summarizes the actionable pieces of each interview in an email you can read in about three minutes, as well as unlocking the vault of the archive of all 827 of these such summary nuggets. We call those the gold nuggets. And you can find all of that at the website awesome at your So I recommend that you, you dig it, you have some fun, and you might start if this is your first episode, to get a feel for what we got by listening to the very first episode, zero, 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 and then A, B, C, D, E, F. (laughs) Yeah, there's six of them, Uh, which will give you a taste for, oh, okay, this is what this podcast is all about. If you're just joining us in the new year, as many people do. So, so great to have you. Thank you would love to hear from you. My email is pete at awesome at your job.com. And that's that story. Let's hear Leanne's story. Leanne Davy is a New York Times bestselling author. Her most recent book is called The Good Fight. Use productive conflict to get your team and your organization back on track. She's a contributor to the Harvard Business Review and is called on by the media for her leadership, team effectiveness, and productivity expertise. As the co-founder of 3COZE Inc., she has companies such as Amazon, RBC, Walmart, Unicef, 3M, and Sony. Leanne has a PhD in organizational psychology. Big thanks to Leanne for sharing her wisdom with us. And big thanks to our sponsors. Check them out. One sponsor to check out is LinkedIn Jobs. Did you know that you can post a job for free? Now, here's Leanne. Leanne, welcome to How to Be Awesome at Your Job.
2: Thanks, Pete. I'm pretty excited to be here.
1: Well, I'm excited to talk about your wisdom when it comes to conflict and your work, The Good Fight. Use productive conflict to get your team and your organization back on track. And (laughs) this is a weird segue, but one time I had a consulting project where we had to get one of the world's largest bakeries, a huge factory for cookies and crackers back on track and i learned that you have a special love for factories what's the story here
2: since I was a little kid, I used to watch this television show that they did factory tours of things like how do they make crayons? And that one's really stuck with me for 48 years, I think. And so I just developed this lifelong fascination of how factories work. And not only do I watch the shows on TV, but now every chance I get, I will tour a factory. And I have also been to a large industrial bakery and watch them make chocolate lava cakes. I have been, to the factory where they make edge shaving cream and glade candles. And so, and the best one, of course, the Mars chocolate bar factory. So it's just, I love how the machines work. Industrial engineering just gets me really excited. I did not have any of the skills to study it or do it professionally. So I just hop on as a spectator whenever I can.
1: Well, that's fun. And what's the name of the show?
2: So how it's made. Oh, uh, so yes. the, when I was a little kid, it was called Polka Dot Door. Okay, And I'm in Toronto. It was a a local show here in Toronto. It was wonderful. They used to go through the polka dot in the door and open up to a video of a factory, but then how it's made as a, all of the mighty machine type shows and, and extreme construction. There's lots of them now, very popular.
1: Oh, that is fun. I heard, I believe it was the I love marketing podcast. uh, One of their hosts suggested that is a good exercise for marketing business folks, because it just gets, I don't know, I find I've only done it like four times, but I found what I did, there's a bit of like awe and inspiration that gets my mind noodling on. Well, huh. (laughs) What's my product? A podcast. How does that get?
3: <laughs> yeah, what are
1: the yeah, steps? Yeah. What are my bottlenecks? What what can be improved?
2: Right. When I learned that I wasn't going to be good at engineering or building it, I started to think about the modern economy and what's the equivalent of a factory or a machine in the modern economy. And of course, the answer is it's a team, mm-hmm. right? In knowledge work, the team is the machine, and so I was like, oh, I can do psychology. <laughs> <laughs> that comes naturally. So that's where I still think of it as machinery in a sense, but it's just human machinery.
1: Yes. Well, oh, Leanne, you did the, the work of the tricky segue <laughs> for me, because <laughs> let's talk about these machines. And, and sometimes things are not quite functioning properly in the realm of, of conflict, could you share with us what do most people get wrong about conflict or, or what have you found supremely surprising and fascinating, counterintuitive in terms of your discoveries within this topic?
2: Yeah. Teams don't have enough conflict.
1: Okay. Not enough. I've heard that before. I think it was Pat Lincione who mentioned it on the show. Please unpack that for us.
2: Yeah, so conflict, which let me just define it, because I think, you know, when there's wars raging in the world and COVID mask wearing fights on Facebook and everything else, I think conflict has got a bad rap. But conflict is just the struggle between incompatible or opposing needs, wishes and demands. And by 10 o'clock every morning, if you work in an organization, you've faced many struggles between incompatible and opposing needs, wishes, and demands. So if we're going to take a limited number of resources, a limited number of hours in the day, people who are overtaxed and overworked, and decide what's the most valuable thing we can be doing with their time that's going to require conflict because there are many things competing for their time and attention. If we're going to look at a plan and not just rubber stamp it, but look at what are some of the assumptions, what are some of the risks that takes conflict. If we're going to give somebody feedback that the way their work landed with us or the way their behavior landed with us is causing problems, that's going to require conflict. So all day, every day, Conflict is important, critical to healthy organizations, and so that's what people are most surprised about. So what we get wrong is that as humans, we tend to run from conflict, particularly with our own groups. We believe that having conflict with those people is going to get us voted off the island in some Mm -hmm. sense. And so we have far too little productive conflict. And then we can also talk about, on the other hand, we tend to have uh, far too much Unhealthy, unproductive, harmful conflict. So we're getting it wrong. We have too little of what I call tension, which is the kind of conflict that stretches us and helps us grow and learn and optimize solutions. And we have too much friction, which is the kind of conflict that is about not listening, not budging, not learning that wears us down. That's hmm. uh,
1: very beautiful, Leanne. The, the tension versus friction. Maybe it's I don't get enough kinesthetic metaphors in my life.
2: (laughs) The metaphor, if you want to take it further. So what I say is I use the word conflict, even though a lot of people ask me not to. I use it because I don't ever want folks to have the expectation that it's not going to be uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. It is uncomfortable. Even the healthiest, most productive conflict is uncomfortable. But I always say tension is uncomfortable like yoga. Yes. So it's uncomfortable.
1: I was thinking weightlifting. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah,
2: that one as well, right? But in both cases, weightlifting and yoga, the stretch of that tension is constructive. It builds muscle. It enhances flexibility. It makes us better. But on the other hand, friction, if you want to play with the metaphor there, is like getting a blister. Yeah. And there is nothing good to be said (laughs) for a blister. It is that chafing, agonizing, red raw kind of feeling. So we want more tension more of that yoga weightlifting stretch, and we want less friction.
1: Well, Leanne, I'd love it if you could zoom in and and make this extra clear and real for us in terms of sharing a, a case study or success story of a team or a professional who had a whole lot of friction and how they converted that into useful tension.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I'm working with a team right now where issues have built up in in what I refer to as conflict debt. Mm -hmm. So just as we can get into debt by charging things we can't afford to our credit card, we get into conflict debt by just deciding we don't have the energy or the time to address issues. And we just put them aside. And unfortunately, the interest compounds and we get ourselves into bigger and bigger trouble as that conflict debt piles up in a team. So I'm working with a team that's in a considerable amount of conflict debt. And there's a lot of friction. And the friction is being experienced as they're arrogant. They don't empathize. And it's all coming out as things that are very subjective. The behavior has now got to the point where I'm not even responding to their emails. I don't even want to talk to them. And so we've we've reached this stalemate where that's where I got involved. And so the work is to say there is tension in here. There is something uncomfortable that we need to talk about, get into the open so that we can do a better job of understanding the realities and the constraints for everybody involved. But the problem right now is there's no chance to resolve the tensions or kind of come up with a solution that optimizes, because everyone is experiencing it as friction. And so it's one of the things that you can do is really take the way that you're feeling. And so if you're feeling that someone is arrogant, that's a judgment. And arrogance is probably more about how you're experiencing the other person's behavior than about what the other person is intending. So the first thing to do is to just notice that you're making a judgment. And it's not real or objective. It's true that it's your judgment. And so we don't want to invalidate it, but we want to start by kind of saying, what is making me feel that they're arrogant? What, what is it that I'm seeing or hearing or not seeing or hearing that is leading me to that conclusion? And just to, as a very first step, just interrogate your own judgments because those judgments are going to be a big, big source of friction. Once you can kind of interrogate the judgment, you want to, again, not invalidate it, not tell yourself that I'm not allowed to feel that way, but instead to try and translate it into, okay, if I wanted to communicate that to the other person in hopes of changing the interaction, how could I say it in a way that is either useful feedback so I could determine what's their behavior and how am I reacting to it? So I could say something like, when... In the last three decisions we've made, we've gone with your recommendation over my recommendation. I feel like my ideas aren't valuable. I feel like they're not getting a fair shake. So we can take what was judgment about arrogance and translate it into behaviors, you selecting your ideas over mine or somebody else's over mine, or we can make a request. We can say... What I would really love is if when you go with a decision other than the one I recommended, could you help all of us understand how you took my input, how you used it, how you mitigated the risks that I mentioned, even if we're going with the other decision? So that's really a big thing. When you have friction, when you get into a hole, when you get into that conflict debt, you'll tend to have a lot of judgment about other people. So listen to it, interrogate it, and then translate it into something that is constructive, something that is positive tension, and move forward from there.
1: Hmm. Well, as I put myself into that situation, I'm imagining the person on the other side saying something you really don't want to hear, which which may be the, the unpleasant truth, which is, well, the input that you have provided historically has been inaccurate and Risky and, well, I guess here we're doing some more labeling or judging. Uh,
2: but that's, that um, is what's most likely to happen, right? Yeah. So mm-hmm. keep going. Keep yeah, role-playing okay. that and I'll answer. Well, Leanne,
1: <laughs> I appreciate you being able to articulate this to me. I guess the challenge we're facing is that in those three examples that we've explored there, your input was inaccurate and, and risky and showed a basic lack of understanding about the, the core issues that we're dealing with here.
2: Wow, that's pretty unpleasant to hear. <laughs> like, I, a, a lack of understanding and risky. That certainly not my intention. What do you see as the things I wasn't paying enough attention to? Or what else do you think I need to understand to be in a position to offer more valuable advice or suggestions in the future? So what you want to do is not allow people to throw judgment back at you. Okay. right. So I do think it's the way you role played. It is very true. People will often say, well, you were risky or ill-informed. That's what they'll give you. So be prepared for that. But the key thing in that situation. So what I was trying to show is it's okay to say that that just felt like a sucker punch, right? It's okay to be human.
1: Yeah. And I'm sorry, Leanne, even though it was a role play, yeah. it felt hard saying it.
2: <laughs> <laughs> right. And so it's okay to say, that's really hard to hear. Like, I've, I've mm-hmm. never had that feedback before. So it's okay to react for a moment, to just buy yourself a little time. Or even I, with some folks, I just recommend, don't even worry about getting a lot of words out. Just say something like, ow. <laughs> mm-hmm. And then give yourself a moment to then say, Okay. And you can either in the moment say, what does risky look like? Could you share with me what I was missing? What made my recommendations risky? Or what else do you think I need to understand or learn or appreciate to, and so you can go right after it then. Or you can say, ow, and say, I'm going to need to reflect on that for a bit. Mm-hmm. Can I follow up with you on this later, or could I ask that we have another time where you help me understand what risky looks like and what it means, and and where we go from here? So first of all, don't let someone judge you. Okay, I think that's a key piece of advice. Mm-hmm. Make them do the hard work of giving you something objective because you did the hard work to be objective with them. Yeah, and then. Don't be afraid to let people know that you are human and it can be hurtful when somebody Mm -hmm. judges you. And then finally, lead on whether you would like to have that conversation now or whether you need a little bit of time, but do come back to a place where you can find out both what happened that didn't work the first time and what could look differently so that it goes better the next time.
3: Mm -hmm.
1: That's really excellent. As I and as I'm imagining the conversation playing out. I mean, I guess you'll realize that again, I'm doing more (laughs) labeling and judging. It's like, there's a chance I imagine it's slim, (laughs) Leanne, maybe you've got the data that uh, (laughs) you are dealing with just a full on sociopath, our total jerk face who just has no
2: 5%.
1: All right. 5% who has little regard for your feelings or whatever, but I guess more likely you'll hear something which is useful or on its way to being useful in terms of, well, Leanne, you fail to consider just how sensitive issues X, Y, and Z are for stakeholders, uh, A, B, and C. And those are really hot button issues. And it's pretty cavalier to just mention them in this flippant context, which could really set them off and and make our team look bad. It's like, oh, I had no idea (laughs) that those were hot button issues for those stakeholders. And now I know. Or it's like, your proposals seem to overlook the the fundamental fact that a key part of our valuation is the Wall Street perception of blah, 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 blah. Yeah. It's like, oh, you're right. <laughs> I thought all that mattered was cash flow. Right. Or profitability. Like, okay. Hmm. So that could indeed unlock some insight or... Often that's the problem with feedback is it remains in this fuzzy land in terms of, right. you just need to be more of a team player, Leanne.
2: Right, so let, <laughs> let's stop on feedback for a moment yeah. because I feel really passionately about this one. What the vast majority of people call giving feedback is actually making evaluations. It's not feedback at all. So feedback, true feedback is to give the other person new insight about how their behavior is impacting you. So, I could say, Hey, Pete, when you sent me information to prepare for this conversation, so that's totally objective. It's it's something you did. I say, For the record, (laughs) I felt like you really take this podcast seriously, like I was excited to be on a podcast that is so professional. That's feedback. So, the feedback is not novel information about you or your behavior. It's novel information about me or the impact of your behavior. And what we do most of the time is we just walk around flinging judgment at people. (laughs) So, And in this case, it's positive. And so people think it's okay. Hey, Pete, you're so professional.
1: Yeah, you're right. I didn't mind that at all.
2: (laughs) Right. But I encourage people to, I call that praise, right? It Mm -hmm. is unconstructive, positive messages. Yeah. And I encourage people to practice on the positive. Because if you practice on the positive and get it wrong, you're not going to get in much trouble. When you move to the more constructive or negative feedback, it becomes more dangerous and and higher stakes. So you want to practice on the positive. But what you're doing is when you're giving somebody feedback, if you tell them what they think, if you tell them how they feel, if you tell them who they are, that denies somebody's personal sovereignty, and it's likely to lead to a really unhealthy conflict. It's, it's not going anywhere good. If you describe their behavior as objectively as possible in a way that you go, you're right. I did send a four-page document about how to be prepared for this podcast. You're going to be nodding and saying yes. Mm-hmm. And then, so I might've given you it as constructive feedback. I was pretty overwhelmed. I was nervous that I'm... <laughs> am not mm-hmm. ready to be on this podcast or I'm not good enough. I could have given it as constructive. But again, the key thing is that your behavior is not something you're going to debate or disagree with in my feedback. What you're going to be surprised by and learn from is, oh, I didn't intend to intimidate a guest. I was trying to help you feel prepared. Mm-hmm. So that's getting feedback right and actually delivering feedback, giving people the gift of candor, what I would say is, candor for me is me being willing to be uncomfortable for your benefit. So it's uncomfortable if I had, if it's of course not true, because I, I felt very positively about the preparation for the podcast. But if I had felt intimidated, being vulnerable and saying that was intimidating, opens me up to saying I'm not as mm-hmm. professional as some of your other guests, uh, right?
1: You're not committed. You're not willing to do the work, Leanne.
2: Right. So it candor is me being willing to be personally uncomfortable for your benefit. But I'd like you to know, just in case there are other guests in the future, or in case your intent was not to intimidate the guest or those sorts of things. So if we could just get that one thing fixed up, if we could start giving proper feedback and stop evaluating and judging like it's uh, feedback most of the time is just evaluation and judgment in sheep's clothing <laughs> yeah so if we could stop that we would deal with a lot of the friction that's going on at the moment
1: oh, Leanne this is a lot of good insightful stuff and I'm thinking about that notion of well, in my consulting brain sees a two-by-two two matrix <laughs> yeah. in, in terms of you know constructive unconstructive like that's right you're very professional it's like that feels good but it doesn't, it doesn't help me. But I guess, and now I'm thinking about, uh, Russ Laraway, where he talks about continue coaching is, is like in praise or, or comparable. And so it's, I guess the constructive point might be just something like, Hey, I really recommend you make sure you keep doing that. It, like, if you switch calendar software providers, make sure people still get that thing. Cause it's so good. It's like, right. Like, okay, right. I'll keep that in mind.
2: Yeah, exactly. So, or I could ask a question like, what's one new insight you've had in the last month and not incorporated into the document yet? I could ask you something like that to help you more deeply process something you're doing well. So yeah, the two by two is, is it constructive or unconstructive? And is it behavior I want you to do more of or do less of? Right. Mm -hmm. So that would be what people tend to call positive or negative feedback. Yeah. I don't like that term, but it's do I want more of the behavior? So coaching forward or do I want less of the behavior? And so that's the two by two. So praise is everywhere. So praise like good job. And if you want a, a fun research tidbit, Dr. Nick Morgan.
1: Oh, yeah, we have him.
2: Yeah. So Nick is a great friend. And Nick cited some research. I'm going to get the stats wrong. But it's something like 60% of folks who receive a text or an email or a comment that's just good job, about 60% of them interpret that as sarcasm. Oh. <laughs> so you you think you're praising someone. You think you're being nice. And they're like, oh, well, fine, right? They experience it as sarcasm. So that's all the more reason to not praise people, which is that unconstructive, Mm -hmm. I want more of this, and instead to go to the effort that we're talking about of giving positive feedback. So when you sent out that document, I felt so prepared. I felt confident signing on today. I'm really interested. Are there any new things you've realized that you haven't added to the document yet? That's that handing that baton back to you to process it a little bit more deeply. One of the things that's good about that is lots of people don't like getting that positive feedback. (laughs) They're a little squeamish or awkward or uncomfortable about it. So they just let it float away. So by asking you a question, like what's one insight you haven't incorporated yet, it forces you to process that positive feedback, to work with it, to internalize it a little more. So it makes it stickier Mm -hmm. on the behavior we're trying to get less of Asking the question is really so in the case of where we're talking about being less arrogant, uh, saying something like, how do you want to be perceived by your colleagues in operations would be a way of forcing the person to process, oh, okay. if you're telling me that the way this lands as I'm smarter than everybody else. Processing the question of how do I want to be perceived forces me to work with that information, again, making it stickier. So, yeah, so the great pieces of of good feedback are sort of orient the person to the situation, describe their behavior, then give them an insight about you, and then pivot the conversation to processing it more deeply and what am I going to do with that information.
1: Mm Mm-hmm. Oh, so much good stuff, Leanne. Well, I've got all these questions I wanted to ask, like, how do we work through the emotion of conflict? And it sounds like we hit it right there, but was there more?
2: Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, wow, okay. Oh, 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 (laughs) yes. Okay, emotion is a big, 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 big important topic for me we're not good at it. And a lot of our conflict debt is because we, we don't want to broach the topic because we fear triggering an emotional reaction. And sometimes that's a very positive thing. It's like, I don't want to hurt these people. I care about them. And, and sometimes it's a bit of a selfish thing. I don't want them to not like me anymore. or mm-hmm. I don't want them to yell at me because that would scare me. So one of the things we need to understand is that I say this all the time. Facts don't solve fights. Okay. period. And if wearing masks debated on Facebook is not the perfect evidence that facts don't solve fights, I don't know what is. But you coming up with some example of where two people were wearing masks and they both got covid and therefore isn't it clear that masks don't work? And me posting back some article from Science Magazine with showing respiratory droplets, you know, nobody is changing their mind (laughs) based on that fight with facts. Instead, we need to understand that fights are about values and beliefs and things that matter. And so emotions are simply clues that we, I always talk about this as if the dragon starts to breathe fire, you know it's protecting treasure. So the facts are just the wall of the castle. (laughs) They're very unimportant. But if the dragon is breathing fire, yelling crying, getting angry, pounding the table, then that's your clue. Emotions are a very, very helpful clue that there is something going wrong, that there is a value that they hold dear that feels at risk, feels threatened, and that's why you're getting the fight that you're getting. So emotions are one of the most important data sets we get in organizations. And emotions don't always come out as yelling or tears. One way emotions often come out is people start to dial up their language. So all of a sudden their sentences are including, well, you always and we never and every single th- <laughs> we start mm-hmm. to use absolutes. We start to see sarcasm pop in to people's comments. So all of those things, whether it be tears or sarcasm or any of these other examples are are just signs that there's emotion present, which means there are values at play in this conversation. And so trying to put more facts or take facts out of the brick wall is not going to help. What you need to do is get the brave knight to lower the drawbridge so you can come in and you can find out what's actually going on. So I think emotions are a different metaphor. if, If you don't like the fire breathing dragon metaphor, a different metaphor is emotions in the workplace are a lot like pain, not something you want very often, but very useful if there's an injury because they tell you to slow down and stop and pay attention, and it gives you the opportunity to, to figure out what's actually going wrong. So I find it, we treat emotions as something to push through as quickly as we can, to suppress, to invalidate, to just say, well, this is business, not personal, or suck it up, buttercup. When emotions are one of the most valuable data sets that we have in an organization, and it's really, it's so important that we use those data to figure out what is this fight actually about.
1: Mm-hmm. And so when we talk about values, well, I've seen long lists of, of values. Yep. And I guess I'm also thinking about fundamental human needs in my head is Marshall Rosenberg's Uh, nonviolent communication, Mm -hmm. talking about our, I felt like my need for respect wasn't being met. And so I I felt angry. And so when you say values, are you thinking about a short list on a menu or are you thinking about, it could be hundreds of things.
2: Yeah, I think it can be hundreds of things. So I was working with an organization, a high tech computer organization, and we were debating about whether they needed to do a, a layoff or not. And the CEO was advocating pretty strongly against it, while the general manager of the unit that was in the red (laughs) was advocating pretty strongly for it. And they really, there was a lot of friction. It wasn't a constructive conversation. And so one of the ways to get values on the table in business is to ask the question, Okay, what are the criteria for making a good decision here? Because it's kind of code, and people think that that's an okay thing to say in the business world where what do you value? (laughs) It Mm -hmm. just doesn't feel like. So, when I said that, the general manager said, Well, I really value performance. I am here on behalf of the shareholders to make sure this business is profitable, and, and I wear that responsibility very heavily. And then the CEO, interestingly, said, Well, you know what? For me, I feel like tech companies have mojo, and if you lose that mojo, that's worth more than a couple of quarters in the red. You don't get it back. And so I'm thinking about that.
1: Now, Leanne, if I could time out for just a moment, mojo uh, could be (laughs) defined a few ways. Could you unpack that a smidge?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So Silicon Valley companies, and actually this is a great time to be saying that, right? Their valuations, both in the stock market, but also in the eyes of potential employees or users, you know, they are often quite disconnected from reality. (laughs) They are not about how much revenue or profit the company makes. There's just something more about brand, more about hype, more about excitement some companies have momentum behind them and some don't. And this was a company that had a lot of momentum. It was seen as a cool company, a company people wanted to invest in, a company people wanted to work for. And so the CEO's concern was that if we do our first layoffs, then the big risk is that uh, we lose that and we never get it back. We never go back to being a company that's never let a single person go. So this was a few years ago now, and it was just so helpful to have that on the table Mm -hmm. and to be able to talk that through because he'd never articulated it. The general manager couldn't figure out why the heck the CEO was willing to have his business be unprofitable. And so once we could talk about that, these are all legitimate things. Now, how do we balance them? How do we make trade-offs among them? How do we decide which way to go? And actually what was really cool about it is then we got away from the friction and into a really powerful conversation with really good tensions that led to a completely different option, which was we have other business units that are quite profitable at the moment. Could we move some of the folks, the really key talent over to the other unit for a while, make some real progress there? never have to let go people who would be very hard to replace but also give the other business a little bit of a chance to to recover cut its costs and so once we got to everybody feeling heard, everybody feeling that the things that mattered to them were part of the equation for the solution, then they just got so much more creative. Then they got out of this adversarial scenario and into, let's really think about this together. If we're trying to solve for profitability of the business, if we're trying to solve for keeping the mojo of the company, others then started to add, the chief technology officer was the one who raised the issue that these are people with specialty skills that we've been training for 10 years. If we lose those we don't get them back so he was his addition in things he values to the criteria conversation is what unlocked this possibility of could we second them into a different part of the organization so when we feel heard when we feel understood when we feel like our treasure matters to other people as well then we settle into all right now we're smart people trying to figure out how do we balance these things so it's it's a very very useful and constructive productive conflict technique.
1: Well, Leanne, before we shift gears and hear about some of your favorite things, I'd love to hear if there's any super quick and powerful tips and tricks that make a world of difference.
2: Yeah, there really is. And the one magic trick of all of this is that most of the time we walk around the world working so hard to have people understand our experience, as Stephen Covey used to call it, we strive to be understood instead of seeking to understand. So there's a technique I call validation which is just when someone says something you disagree with or you think is a dumb idea, pause for a moment. And instead of shooting down their idea or telling them why it will never work, validate them by saying, okay, so you think we should host a customer event in Q1. So all you've done is reflect and then be curious, ask, try and understand that's coming from somewhere, something they value and just ask a big open-ended question what do you see as the big advantages of that? Tell me your thought process. What got you there? Some kind of a big question. And then listen and ask and and reflect until you feel confident that you can kind of get their truth out of your mouth. Then you might say, okay, so for you, you're, you're worried that our marketing launch didn't bring the benefits of this new approach to life for our customers. And until... They feel it in a different way until they can maybe put their hands on the new product. You don't think sales are going to go up. So that's why doing an event in person feels like the right solution for you. What you'll find is when you speak their truth, even more importantly, when their truth comes out of your mouth before your truth does, it will be an entirely different conversation. It will shift to truly a conversation, a dialogue, and it won't be a fight Then what's cool about humans is we work on reciprocity. So when you've taken the time to understand their truth and and listen and validate them, they will be highly likely, unless we're with the 5% of sociopaths, but if we're with 95% of the population, and then you say, the way I was thinking about it was that before we talk to our customers, we need to do another round of training with our sales staff. I'm not sure they're ready to tell the message in a compelling way. So I was thinking that that was the issue. How do we get the right balance between our sales team and and going directly to our clients? Or you can ask whatever other question. But when you've spoken their truth first, when you've added your truth, not as something more right or more worthy, but you've added it as a second truth. And then you've pivoted to, hmm, okay, what are our options here? How do we deal with this? You will find you avoid, you neutralize 80% of conflicts in your team. And the one thing, I know you have a young one at home. I have a 20-year-old and a 16-year-old daughter, and this method, it got me through the entire teenage years. (laughs) If you validate a teenager, if you make them feel heard, if you're curious about why that's true for them and you get their truth out of your mouth first they actually will hear you out they will let you coach them they will stay with you so this technique my guess is every single person listening will be able to use this technique today at some point because Mm -hmm. we we tend to do the opposite we invalidate people we push for our truth or why our idea is smarter or all of these things first and if we flip the order and said, okay, let me make sure I know your truth. And as soon as we both know that I know your truth, then I'll add mine. It changes everything.
1: Hmm. Thank you, Leon. Well, I, I'm curious, could you, <laughs> any particularly memorable exchanges with teenager yes. that you could
2: yeah. share with us as an illustration? <laughs> it's like, oh, that's how it's done. I'm going to first tell you how, how not to do it because okay. it's memorable because I did it wrong. When the elder one was in grade 10, uh, she was taking music because she loved music. And she came home one day and proclaimed that she hated her music teacher. And I blew it. I kind of looked at her. I don't like the word hate. And I definitely don't like it aimed at a teacher. So my response was, you don't hate your music teacher. Which, if you remember, we were talking about the cardinal rules of respecting someone's sovereignty. Mm. Telling somebody else how they feel is not cool. Not allowed. And so I blew that. So it took me about three weeks to earn back the right to talk to her about this. And what you say, I do too. You don't understand, mom. Shut up. Well, she started and then she just stormed off. Okay. The heavy thumps up the stairs and mm-hmm. then the dramatic slamming of the door. And she was right to do that. I had really overstepped. I had, i had blown it. And so when we, when I tried again, do over, you have to do do overs with teenagers. When I did the do over, I just said, Hey, I want to go back to this and it must really suck to hate your music teacher, because you got an hour and 20 minutes of that every single day. And I know you love music. And even just me saying that, me just validating that that must be rough, changed her entire body language. And so then I said, what's going on? And I, being a horrible person, had assumed Mm -hmm. that this was the teacher who'd finally figured out that she never practices.
3: No. But that wasn't it at all.
2: <laughs> I'm so bad. It turned out that this teacher, there was a, a kid in the class, probably a neurodiverse kid, would be my guess. Sitting still, not fidgeting, was a challenge for him. And this old school teacher just had would have no part of it. And she was leaving him, bullying him, my daughter said, and mm. leaving him in the hall for the majority of almost all classes. And that's why she was so upset. It wasn't on her be- own behalf. It was because somebody else was being wronged. And my kid is a social justice crusader. And so I said I could, I could then speak her truth. So you're really worried that Miss T is quite unfair to Gibby. You're worried how this is affecting him. Okay. And and first of all, I was proud of her for for Mm -hmm. feeling all those things. And then I could say, okay, now what I'm thinking about is how do we make sure you don't lose your love of music? How do we make sure this doesn't affect your grade? Can we find you other outlets for your love of music outside of the classroom? And she was totally willing to entertain those things once I had been clear that this was about the injustice and and the teacher's behavior in the classroom. So, invalidating her cost me 3 weeks. Yeah. And that was extremely costly and it was modeling terrible behavior and I had really blown it. But when I came back to it and I said, "Look, I'm sorry about that. I blew that and I really want to understand and I want to hear you." And when I was open and listened and reflected her experience of the situation then she was so keen to talk with me about what can i do and what are my other options and it was really really powerful and she's a junior in college now and we have great conversations about hard things now because i finally figured out that this validation technique which just takes a little practice completely changes the tone of all of our conversations
1: Oh, beautiful. Thank you, Leanne. Well, now, if we could hear a bit about your favorite things, could you start us with a favorite quote, something you find inspiring?
2: When everyone thinks alike, no one thinks very much.
1: Okay. And a favorite study or experiment or bit of research?
2: So we've been talking so much about cameras on and cameras off and Zoom and all those sorts of things. New piece of research that when we're having these hard conversations, when we're trying to understand values and and emotions and those sorts of things. Turns out the telephone is much, much better at promoting what they call empathic accuracy than these web calls. So uh, if you really need to connect with someone, if you're in conflict, if you need to understand where they're at, and if you want to be more accurate in empathizing, go for a walk, put in your earbuds and talk on the phone.
1: Well, yeah, that's so fascinating and counterintuitive. It seems like we aren't we missing out on all these these facial expression indicators with the phone. We have hypotheses as to what the mechanism is by which that is so.
2: Yes, it's new research. But so first of all, we get a lot more information from voice than we think. So, like, here's my mini experiment for you. If you close your eyes, I'm going to talk, and at some point in talking, I'm going to start smiling.
3: Could you hear it? Did you hear the uh difference between?
2: So right now I'm not smiling and now I'm Mm -hmm. smiling. Mm -hmm. So what happens is when you pull up the muscles in your face to smile, it lifts up your soft palate, changes the shape of the resonant chamber of your mouth. And it's absolutely something that we can pick up on. So there's more data in the voice than we think or know. And new studies are saying that we take up a lot of bandwidth, cognitive bandwidth, in trying to process people's facial expressions and body language. And we're not always very accurate Mm. about it. So what you're doing in going to the phone is you're getting rid of all of the energy it takes to process and misprocess (laughs) that facial information. And you're really keying in on what is actually quite high fidelity data coming from pitch and tone and and words and all those sorts of things. So, yeah, really fun, exciting new research coming out.
1: Mm. Fascinating. Thank you. And a favorite book?
2: Well, I guess if you want relative to this topic, I would say Chris Voss, Never Split the Difference. Oh, yeah. Former FBI hostage negotiator. And it, it's just full of of many fascinating stories and insights. And I know that thankfully for most of us, the stakes are not as high as hostage negotiations in most of our collaborations. But there are many things to be learned from Chris's stories and examples.
1: Mm-hmm. And could you share a favorite tool, something you used to be awesome at your job?
2: So I am a big fan. So I, my PhD is organizational psychology. So I am coming to every conversation with the understanding that, while we want to have one size fits all, and we want to have the perfect advice that individual differences play far bigger of a role than we yet appreciate on teams. So I use a tool called the Berkman. It's a very deep and insightful psychological assessment tool. And I don't leave home without it. I I don't work with any teams without having that understanding, deep understanding of the individual. So Berkman would be my favorite tool.
1: Okay. And a favorite habit?
2: This is not a productive habit, but I am so in love with, you know, the Wordle craze. Oh, yeah. I did Wordle. I'm not a big fan of Wordle because some days I get stuck and it makes me feel dumb, but it's expanded and it's had babies. It's gone to Quirtle, so it's four words at a time, and now Octordle, which is eight words at a time. And so every morning I do the Octordle, which sounds ridiculous, and I then text my results to my 89-year-old mom who lives far away, and she texts me back hers. And that habit, which is just a little tiny moment of connection in to start my day, feels really great.
3: Mm -hmm.
1: Is there a key nugget you share that really seems to connect and resonate with folks? They quote it back to you often.
2: That facts don't solve fights one does come back to me a lot. Maybe another one, since I've already said that one is communication comes from the Latin root commune, which is to make common. And so in this email slack kind of world, I always say you can't make common as one person. So you can't communicate to someone. You can't communicate at someone. You can only communicate with someone. So communication cannot be accomplished on your own. You cannot send an email and check off I have communicated. You only communicate when it's actually being a two-way process and you have made something common. And in conflict, I think we we communicate with each other far too seldom. So that might be another thought that is helpful to folks. Who have you communicated at that you need to communicate with?
1: Mhm. All right. And if folks want to learn more, get in touch, where would you point them?
2: So if you want to come and interact with me, I always talk about LinkedIn as my couch. Come and sit on my LinkedIn couch and let's talk about interesting things about making teams happier, healthier, and more productive. And if you want to dive into the treasure trove that is about 500 articles and free resources, that'd be my website, leandavy.com.
1: Okay. And do you have a final challenge or call to action for folks looking to be awesome with their jobs?
2: Yeah. So this is a big one because I think the vast majority of us are conflict averse. We don't like it. We get into conflict debt. We avoid it. So my call to action is that some things are worth fighting for.
1: Mm -hmm. Leanne, this has been such a treat. I wish you much fun and productive conflict in your interactions.
2: Thanks so much, Pete. I have had a blast.
1: Wow. Leanne said so much good stuff in terms of feedback, what's really handy and why it's tricky. So much to consider unpackage you on there and the notion that facts don't solve fights. And when there is a whole lot of emotion, we're dealing with a value with the dragon and the treasure. So good. And that helps me stay in curiosity longer, which Michael Bungay Stanier talks about in our previous conversations with regard to coaching and how useful that is. But you say, oh, interesting. We got a lot of strong emotion here. What's the value? As opposed to just reacting, like, how dare you? (laughs) And you know, lash it back right at them or something. Not so optimal as opposed to saying, Hmm, looks like I've seen a dragon. What may be the value there? Let's dig in. Oh, and we get to the root of it as opposed to say, Well, check out my facts and why they're better than your facts. So much good stuff from Leanne. Again, the show notes, the transcript, the links to items we've referenced are over awesomeatyourjob.com slash ep827. Hope to catch you next time and peace.